Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Keisha McClintock talks about agency, access, multimodal pedagogies, digital writing, queer and feminist rhetorics, and queer literacies in the rural South. Keisha McClintock is a PhD candidate in composition and rhetoric within the UNL English department. She is interested in community and rural literacies, queer and feminist rhetorics, and digital archives and communities. She typically writes on how those with marginalized identities interact within digital and rural spaces, and is currently working on a dissertation dedicated to exploring queer literacies in the rural South. In teaching, which does both in the UNL English and Women and Gender Studies departments, Keisha often uses pop culture as a pedagogical tool, encourages multimodal writing, and cultivates accessible and inclusive classroom spaces. Keisha, thanks so much for joining us. Your teaching and research interests focus on agency and access in the first year writing classroom. How are you defining, describing, and approaching agency and access? What does this look like for you in the classroom? Uh, so thank you for that question. Um, so when I think about access, I've always kind of been sort of access oriented. I am a person who uh, is a first generation college student. I have chronic multiple chronic illnesses. And so teachers who gave me access were always the sort of teachers that, you know, best served those needs. And so I've always sort of brought this ethos to my classrooms, but I, uh, this especially became more prominent for me during the pandemic. Um, so at my university, grad students are allowed to be assistant WPAs for like a single year. And I just happened to have that position during the 2020 year. And this really made me sort of like radically rethink access and what does access looks like in our classrooms. Um, and I've sort of come to the mindset that access really isn't just accommodations. Obviously, basic accommodations are needed because people have body minds that need specific needs. I started to think about access in more terms of how can we sort of like intellectually, emotionally, and sort of spiritually serve our students. So this sort of comes out of from scholars who are focused on disability justice and who sort of have this repeat of access as love. So access is obviously the basic, very material accommodations that students need, but it's also about speaking and understanding your students in intellectual, emotional, and spiritual ways. And so that's sort of where my mind is on access and that connects to agency and the fact that I always think about like, what types of actions can I do in the classroom or um, in the online space? Because I teach online quite a lot that allow students to become agents in their own learning. And in allowing them to become agents in their own learning, how can I help them also sort of like meet these like intellectual curiosities and needs that they have, meet these sort of like emotional moments that maybe they want to share with me or not share with me. Um, and so that's sort of the philosophy behind it. But when thinking about what that looks like in a more tangible respect, this means sometimes, you know, uh, more sort of overarching, I let students really pick their own subjects. I have a lot of freedom in my course design. And so if I'm in like a writing and inquiry class, students spend an entire semester exploring the inquiry topic of their choice. Right now I'm teaching writing community classes in an online format. Um, so I'm having students study online communities of their choice. And that's just a way of giving them agency. And within their agency, I think there's also sort of like access too, because you're allowing students to both care for their own intellectual wants and needs and emotional wants and needs as you're doing it as their teacher about it, allowing them that agentic choice. 
Other things that I do is I let students turn in works in progress instead of traditional drafts. That way their writing can accommodate like whatever writing styles they have. So some students like to turn in outlines, some like to turn in full drafts, and some just like to vomit ideas on the page and then get my feedback from there. Um, and that's sort of a way of letting them, again, have agency, but also sort of meet their writing needs in an accessible way. Um, and then I also really give a lot of like, Again, I teach online, so I'm very communicative in my online classes. I have like daily sort of online lesson plans that I share with the whole class. Uh, in in-person classes, students create like a shared guidelines of how we'll discuss and speak on things in class. And there's just a bunch of tiny little moves that I do throughout my classes to make sure that like access and agency are always at the forefront. I feel like conversations around access over the last few years pedagogically have been around participation and reconsidering what we mean by that or what it means to participate, assessment and alternative models for assessment, attendance policies, due dates and flexible due dates and so on. Has there been something that has stood out to you more so than other threads and and maybe something that has shifted in your own teaching? Yeah. um, So I think I am in a department where I have the freedom to do this. So I think about attendance a lot as a sort of one. And that seems like a very basic one. But I feel like the expectations for attendance really changed with the pandemic. And it's a change I'm not really a fan of because now um, when students are sick or when students aren't feeling good and they can't make to class, they ask, hey, can I get a Zoom link? And can you like Zoom me into class? Or can I like do this? And that's the place where I'm still like working through tension because part of me is like, no, you're sick, stay home, rest. You don't need to hop on a Zoom for like this one single class session, like you're gonna be okay. And then another part of me is like, well, wouldn't it make the class more accessible if you know I did have these Zoom sessions offered for when people like could not uh, attend class. And so that's something that I'm still working through. That's not necessarily, I guess you said something that stuck out to me because it is something I'm still working through. Like what does attendance mean in this post-pandemic world where we obviously now are making ample use of these technologies like Zoom and other things in helping students sort of maintain attendance in class. As far as just like attendance policies, and again, my department allows me to do this. I don't really have an attendance policy at all. um, And nor do I really count attendance in like any negative way towards students participation. So like, if they're when they're there, if they're participating, that's great. If they're not there, they're not going to like receive any negative repercussions. But sort of figuring out how to accommodate attendance in an accessible way is something I'm still working through. You're interested in multimodal pedagogies and digital writing as well. Have you found these questions around agency and access to complement, challenge, expand the work you do through multimodality and digital writing? And if so, in what ways? Yeah, so I think that in my opinion, and this is kind of a biased opinion, I think that like multimodal pedagogies and digital writing really complement accessibility and agency work. And that's part of because of the student audience I have. I do teach mostly exclusively like freshmen, sophomores. So they're younger. They're very aware of technology. They use technology a lot. And so, you know, when I ask them to do an assignment, that's like, oh, I want you to take a traditional essay that you wrote and transform it into a Twitter thread, for instance, you know, they're like, yeah, I can definitely do that. And it helps them sort of like see and understand like how their writing can be accessible to larger audiences. It helps them think through questions of audience and things like that. 
Um, another assignment or option I've offered students before is to sort of like create visual, uh, visual digital essays. So just sort of like a video essay where they'll be both speaking, but also including like visual elements. And these are all obviously their technologies. So students have to be aware and know how to use those technologies. But that's another place where I give students choice. So in every semester, regardless of what class I'm teaching, I always end the semester with a multimodal project where students just take something they already wrote in the semester and transform it into a new multimodal digital writing genre. Um, and I do this so that students don't have to end the semester stressed out by like a really long paper. They get to do something sort of fun. But I also do this because I want them to end the semester seeing, you know, how could then their writing live beyond the classroom? And then I give them a choice of what they want to do. Some students do like Twitter threads. Some students do podcast episodes. Some students do video essays. I've had students create magazines. I've had students create zines in a smaller, more digital format. Um, and just like sort of all sorts of creativity happens when you give students choice in digital writing. And so that's sort of the place where I create agency and access in the digital writing because it helps them see their writing as more accessible outside the classroom. It helps give them choice in choosing how to do digital writing. And as a whole, I just think it makes the classroom a more accessible space. I'm just a huge advocate of technology. I know there are limitations. Um, I'm from a rural area that and I didn't have access to Wi-Fi until I was like 15 years old. So I know there are limitations with technology, but as a whole, I do think that like it is really helpful to access and agency and helping in these situations of writing. Keisha, I know your teaching and research are also connected to queer and feminist rhetorics. Do you mind talking more about this work and how queer and feminist rhetorics shape your approach to teaching writing? Yeah, so um, queer and feminist rhetorics are sort of like one of my major backgrounds. That's like what I'm writing my dissertation in, all much of my scholarship on, not only because of my own identities, but also my own interest. And part of this is really just because like when I read about like teaching, the scholars who works really speak out to me are the teachers who are just talking about uh, writing or teaching writing in very queer ways, teaching writing in very like feminist ways. Uh, sort of a shout out to my advisor. So for instance, um, Dr. Stacy Wake, who is my advisor, has this wonderful book called like Teaching Queer that when I read it before I even got to UNL, it like blew my mind because it just talks about teaching in a way that just like is so like tangible and so deeply tied to identity, both your identities as the teacher and like sort of cultivating identities and students, no matter what those identities may be. And she just had this like wonderful philosophy about how like teaching queer is about cultivating those identities. It doesn't have to be queer identities. It is just something that like helps you understand because as a queer person, which I am a queer person, your identity is always at the forefront. Like it's not something you can like escape from, hide and helping students understand their own identities in that way, I think is just really powerful work. Um, and I think it's especially powerful work in this sort of like age of like identity politics where we're kind of scared of identity politics and what they mean. But I actually think that part of the issue with identity politics is there aren't enough people who can articulate what their identities mean to them, what it means to their learning, to their writing, and how it helps how they shape the world and see the world. And I help think like in queer and feminist teaching helps students like sort of articulate that a little better and understand those identities better. Were there particular strategies in Stacey Waits teaching queer or maybe just through conversations with other teachers 
that have helped you center queer rhetorics in concrete ways in the writing classroom? And how do students respond to this approach? Again, that's another place where I think giving students sort of the agency of choice really comes into play. So another class that I've taught is writing an argument. And, you know, it's an argument class. So I do have students interrogate arguments. And one thing that I've particularly asked students to do is I've asked them to interrogate like arguments or issues that hit close to home, like interrogate something that affects you in like a deeply personal way. And that does require that students be a little bit vulnerable, but it also helps them sort of like think through their identity. Like, oh yeah, what issues are affecting my identity? What issues are am I invested in that I care about? And sometimes it is, you know, the larger sort of more controversial political issues, like, you know, abortion or trans rights. And sometimes it's more like local stuff. Like I've had students uh, think about like the policies for deaf students at our university and like how that affected them because they're partially deaf. And then I've had students think about like the cost of certain like medical supplies because one of their parents, you know, had like a uh, diabetes and like just thinking about their identities and what they care about, like through these sort of assignments that allow them to explore that and connect their identities to the larger world. Well, one thing is I do give students like sort of like an out. I tell them it doesn't have to be the thing that affects you the most. It just has to be something that like affects you. So if you don't feel like you're emotionally prepared to, you know, interrogate a certain like policy or law, et cetera, you don't have to do that. You could do something like simple, like for instance, like our university is a, a Coke campus instead of a Pepsi campus. So like you could interrogate that if you're like a Pepsi fan girl or something like that. Um, so that's one of the ways that I like help students is like, you do have an out, you don't have to do the deepest things. Um, but for the most part, honestly, students are really responsive to it. I would say about anywhere from 80 to 90% of students, like every semester, I do a lot of things at conferences and check-ins with my students asking them, you know, what are you enjoying about the class? And so often the reprieve is, I am enjoying that I get to talk about things I care about. I am enjoying that I get to talk about myself and my life because none of my other classes sort of give me the opportunity to do so. There is occasionally a student who's like, I don't really care about anything or like, I don't want to talk about myself or I'm not important. But that is like such a small number that it feels like it's still worth doing for all the many other students who are enjoying the work. This is my last question. Can you talk more about your research on queer literacies in the rural South? Okay, so that research is actually my dissertation project and has also been a couple other smaller projects I've done leading up to the dissertation. So as I've sort of identified throughout the podcast, I am a queer person. I'm also a queer person who grew up in the rural South. Um, and so I have a very self-centered, selfish dissertation project uh, because I am exploring what does queer literacy in the rural South look like? I'm doing this not only through a sort of like ethnography reflection of my own identities, but also through an extensive oral history project where I've like recruited and interviewed uh, 20 plus participants from the rural South and asked them about their experiences with queer literacy. And by queer literacy, I sort of mean like, what does it mean to come to know and become a queer person? Like what type of vocabularies do you need? Like what are the identity markers do you need? Gay, trans, lesbian, but also sort of like what social performances does it require? And also sort of like, just what does it mean to build queer self, to build queer community? 
And um, I've already done all those interviews. I've also created a digital oral history project alongside it. So that way my dissertation will live sort of beyond the pages of my writing. Um, and I'm currently sort of drafting that dissertation. And in this, I'm just finding a lot of really important work, again, about access. So I sort of started this project with sort of the intention of like, it's going to be a project about queer literacy and how people come to understand and know queer literacy. But a big theme that has emerged has been access and how people can't actually like practice queer literacy if they don't have access. And it's from my dissertation that I've sort of like really contextualized what I talked about in the beginning with thinking about access of like, what are the material needs that need to be met versus what are the intellectual, spiritual, emotional needs that need to be met? And for queer people, like material needs are going to change shape based on where you're at. Um, and people in the rural South in particular very much lack in material needs because of like laws and policies, because of just, you know, the realities of geographic limitations, like they're nowhere near resources for queer people. But then there's also the case of, again, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual needs, because like some of these people were raised in rural communities that were actually very supportive of their queer identities. Others were raised in rural communities where their queer identities were just like immediately shamed. They had some like really violent things happening to them. And so I've been thinking about access in this project and what does like sort of queer access look like for queer people in the rural South? And what does that mean for how they become queer through acquisition and learning of queer literacy. Um, and that is an ongoing project. I have uh, mostly drafted it now, but of course, as many people know, a dissertation draft is not the dissertation, and it's probably going to go through a lot more revision before it gets done. Thanks, Keisha. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.